Hey, that's, that sounds great. Um, hey, I am glad that you're here with us this morning. We are, if you're new with us, we are a church that believes in God's Word. And we want to stand on God's Word as the inerrant or infallible Word of Almighty God. And so we go, we're doing something I've not done before, which is to go through the book of Mark. And we are looking at all 16 chapters over a 16-week period. And today we're in Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bible, I want to ask you to open it up and look at that. You can follow along on the screen or in your bulletin as well. But let's look at Mark chapter 6 this morning together. And before we do, can I ask you to do this with me? Would you bow your head? And let me just ask the Lord to bless this time and help us to look at or hear His Word the way we should. So Lord, as we begin, that is our simple prayer. Father, that you would speak to us through your holy word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive whatever you would want for us through your word, and help us to be quick to not only listen, but to enact or to apply your word to our lives in whatever way you would want. Thank you for your uh, blessing us and your loving us so much in so many ways, including through your holy word. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody together said, Amen. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6. Now, it's hard to get through a whole chapter in a Sunday message, but we're going to do our best. Let's look at it together. Chapter 6, verse 1 begins like this Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him, and that he even does miracles? And then their tone changes a little. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Right? I think a lot of us have heard that, seen that maybe, lived that in some ways. Well, that's what's going on here. Um, this was his hometown. By the way, he was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. So he's in Nazareth. He's with the Nazarene people. And uh, there is, there is a, there's a struggle going on here from their perspective to embrace or to trust him. You know, I don't know about you, but I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think it's a good thing to look for ways to see the glass half full and to even pray, God, help me to learn how to be an optimist. Help me to see the positive side of things, uh, including people looking for good things. But that clearly was not what was happening here. You know, when the townspeople called Jesus the son of Mary, that does not seem to be a compliment. Now, we don't know this, but it appears that maybe, at least many scholars would theorize, that Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, has already died at this point. He's not mentioned any longer at this point in Scripture. And typically, somebody would be called the son of their dad, son of Joseph, but that was not done. So maybe he's already gone. Maybe Mary's partly looked down, for, down on for a number of reasons, including the fact that, well, if you remember, um, uh, she was pregnant before she was married. And there were probably people who whispered and gossiped about them and had all kinds of different theories about how that might have happened. 
you know, again, she was pregnant, of course, before marriage because of what we call the Immaculate Conception. That was God's plan. But people probably looked down on her for that reason. Maybe they looked down on her because she was poor, especially if Joseph has already passed away, maybe at a young age for some reason. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that part. But maybe that is another reason that people would look down on her. But one way or another, she clearly was not held in the highest esteem, even though today, ironically, she is revered in many respects. But here, apparently not. And as she was looked down on, so was her son, Jesus. You know, Mary's obedience to God in carrying, carrying His blessed Son obviously had all kinds of blessings attached to it. I mean, it was a beautiful thing that she allowed God to do through her. And yet, while that was a wonderful experience, it also brought her pain as well and difficulty, hardship. And I think we all need to take to heart the words of her son, our Savior, when he said, um, right after prophesying and talking about his own death on a cross, he said words like this. He said, if anyone would come after me, he or she must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This applies to his mother as much as anybody. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Following Jesus is the best decision any of us can ever make. Absolutely. It is the number one most important and most beneficial thing you can ever do in life. But that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. We need to understand that. What was difficult for Mary uh, was difficult for Jesus, and in many cases will be difficult for us as well. Being rejected by anyone stings, doesn't it? We've probably all lived that, been there, you know, being rejected by different people. But being rejected by family, you know, those that you grow up with, those who you have a special bond with, that's even harder. And that's true for Jesus, just like it is or would be for you or I. We need to pause and think about what he's enduring and going through here. He was fully God, completely God, and yet he is also fully man at the exact same time. So, he felt this. He felt it just like you or I would feel it. This stung to be rejected in this way. But that reminds me of what God tells us in Hebrews when the Bible tells us, for we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, Jesus feels your pain. He feels your anxiety. He, he feels your struggle, your sorrow, all the above. He has endured and felt the same. And in that way, he, he, he can relate to us. You can relate to Him in a way that maybe you might not have realized before. He did that so that we could approach Him and His throne of grace. I love that phrase. Look at that. I mean, think about it. The throne of grace. What a beautiful image. We can approach that with confidence, confidence that we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Has anybody gone through a time of need, maybe recently, 
at least at some point in your life, many, many times, I'm sure. It is awesome to know, praise God, that we can come to His throne of grace knowing with confidence that He will meet us in our time of need. Amen? Isn't that awesome? I love the image, throne of grace. Well, verse 5 says He could not do any miracles there except lay His hands on a few sick people and heal them as if that's not a big deal. It's kind of a funny statement. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. You know, this verse has confused a lot of people, I think, over the years. You know, this he cannot do any miracles except um, as if he's limited in some way, like he could not do. Well, I think we're missing the point if that's the way you see it. You see, as a general principle in Scripture, miracles followed faith. Okay, let me explain this. On, on some occasions, Jesus performed a miracle in the face of unbelief. For example, when Saul, or a.k.a. Paul, uh, met Jesus and his conversion happened on the road to Damascus. There are times when Jesus performed miracles in the face of unbelief, but most of the time Jesus worked in response to or in cooperation with faith. So Mark is not saying that Jesus' power was limited here. Not at all. That's not the point. Jesus can do anything anything he wants. This is more to say that he chose not to do many miracles because he wanted the faith of the people, which was clearly lacking. He wanted that to be part of the process. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. According to your faith. In the Bible, unbelief is regarded as a mindset, a, a stubborn refusal to believe, a, you could say a moral problem or a moral rebellion, not merely a logical conclusion of evaluating evidence. So these Nazarenes, these people of Nazareth, had a moral problem, not an intellectual one. Their hearts were hardened. Their attitudes were hardened. And I think this can be a warning to all of us. I don't know about you, but I see this applying to my life in that it reminds me to ask myself, Scott, think about it. Does your faith sometimes get in the way? Does your faith maybe sometimes limit what God might want to do in your life, in your family, in your, wor in your work as a pastor in your church? I sometimes pause and think about that. I pray not. I don't want to be the, the weak link in the whole scenario. James chapter 4 tells us you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus said in Matthew 17, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and he picked that one because that's like the smallest, tiniest seed that was available for them to talk about. He said, if you have that, even that tiny little amount of faith, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, as we've talked about, in fact, I think it was last week, we, got to, we have to always look at Scripture in context. If you take out the text, you, all you're left with is just a con. We have to look at Scripture in context. But we need to, therefore, remember as we look at passages like this that He also tells us to ask in His name, according to His will, not with selfish motives, but again, to have great faith along with great humility, as we talked about last week. It's a, it's a balance of these things put together as we look at Scripture together. But personally, in the context of faith, as I look at this, I pause and I sometimes ask myself, Scott, are you the weak link? Are, are, th are, are there things that God wants to do in your life that are not happening because of your lack of faith? 
And I, I pray all the time, God, help me to have more faith. I want to grow and develop in that context. Like exercising a muscle, I want to find a way to develop my faith. I feel a lot like the guy in Mark chapter 9 who had a son who needed to be healed, actually um, cleansed of a, of a, a demon possession in his son. And, and when he was talking to Jesus about the healing, potential healing of his son, he said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, I'm struggling. I want to believe. I do believe. I'm trying, but I still struggle in my, in my human flesh as well. And I feel that way sometimes. So I regularly ask God to help my faith grow. And I want to encourage you to do that. To spend time and say, God, here's who I am. I am all yours, but I still as a human struggle in certain respects. But, so Lord, I believe, but, I, but help my unbelief. Help me to grow. Help me to take, take steps forward in trusting you with my faith, whatever that may look like. And he will give you opportunities. It's kind of like praying for patience. You do that, he's going to give you opportunities to practice your patience. And sometimes you're like, well, I didn't mean that. But you got to trust the Lord with whatever he lays before you. And I think we need to all pray, God, help me to develop my faith. Learn how to take steps in this context. Okay, well, as we move forward, Jesus clearly, as you'll see here in a minute, wants his disciples to do the same thing. So the next thing he does as he sends them out to be witnesses from town to town is he tells them to not take stuff that would really pretty much just be like the normal uh, common sense list of things to take on a journey. And he does that, I think, because he wants them to learn how to trust him more, how to develop their faith like we're talking about. He, he shows them that they need to de- depend upon him more than on themselves. Look at it with me. Verse 6 says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. All right, two things. First of all, notice, again, he tells them not to take very much, hardly anything, because he wants them to learn to trust him. And he's going to illustrate that in an incredible way in just a minute in terms of what he can provide in the face of, oh, what are we going to do? We don't have enough. He can take care of anything in any situation. So he tells them that, but then that last part of that passage we just read there leads some people to think, wow, so Jesus is saying it's okay to flip people off, basically, right? I'm like, no, that's no, look at it again. He didn't say that. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. He's not teaching his disciples to be mean or rude. He's teaching them to be firm and confident and bold. He's saying Don't be ashamed and don't be afraid. Don't be worried about whether people respond appropriately or not. Your job is to plant seeds, to trust and obey. That like that old song, trust and obey. There's no other way. We need to always do that and let him then take care of the results. It's our job to plant seeds. And that's what he's telling them. If they respond, awesome. Continue. You know, water the seed. If they don't, then shake the dust from your feet and move on. It's not the same as flipping somebody off. You don't leave with a bad attitude. You just say, I'm moving on. And sometimes we have to understand this as well. You know, because as Jesus was rejected, we may at times be rejected as well. 
And the main thing is to keep trusting and obeying, keeping our eyes focused on Him, planting seeds and letting Him take care of the, of the rest. But we need to do our part and say, Lord, use me. Help me to be bold. Help me to be willing to share your truth with others, whoever that may be, and not be afraid. All right, verse 12 goes on. They went out and preached that people should repent. That's a bold thing to preach. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. That's awesome. I mean, God's doing great things through these far from perfect people called his disciples. Other places, ordinary, unschooled, very flawed in numerous ways. We're about to see that again in just a moment as well. And, and if he can work through them, these are the guys he handpicked to change the world. And yet they are flawed, and if he can do that through them, if he can change the world through them, he can do things, whatever he wants to do through you and I as well. Don't fall for the lie that God can't use you. Our enemy wants you all to have a sock in your mouth and just keep your mouth shut, especially in our world that screams we need to be politically correct. Standing up for Jesus is not very PC, but we need to stand up for him and trust that if he wants to work through us, he can do anything. And I think there are a lot of times he would do greater things through us if we would just let him, just work, let him work through us. You see, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. All right, let's look at this. Verse 14 and following, there's an interesting story here about how John the Baptist whom Jesus at one point said, none have, that have been born of woman is greater than him. I mean, the greatest man to ever live is basically what Jesus says, and how he came to meet his Lord, how he went home. Look at the story with me. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this, in other words, all these things about Jesus. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him, Jesus. Others said, no, Jesus is Elijah. Still others claim, no, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. I mean, they just didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know how to label him or how to respond to him or what to think of him. Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, all these thoughts about all these theories, he said, John, the man I beheaded, but maybe for Herod and others, maybe it was easier to believe that than it was to simply trust that Jesus is who he says he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Like, well, that's even crazier than John the Baptist uh, being raised from the dead. Maybe that's what was going on. But one way or the other, they had all these weird thoughts. So then the Bible records how John went home to be with the Lord. And I think there's a couple of interesting things about this. Look at, let's read it first. Verse 17, when Herod, heard himself, when, when Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, uh, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So Herodias is a woman whom, whom Philip uh, had married. For John had been saying to Herod, uh, Herod had married, he had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, his wife, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard about John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On, this, on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. Wow. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, time out for just a second. You know, this poor girl, to me, seems like a pawn in the hands of her wicked mother. You know, there's an old saying, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And maybe in that respect, she's following her mother's example. But in this moment, she seems to literally just be a pawn in her mom's hand, which reminds me of when Jesus said in Mark 9, which we'll see in just a couple of weeks, you know, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Wow. Parents, you know, a little sidebar, but focus on and understand the importance of doing the very best you can with God's help to raise your children appropriately. It is a huge responsibility, a huge opportunity, a blessing, but it is important that we handle that well. All right, verse 26, the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Wow. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You know, a lot could be said about this here, but let me just say a couple things. One would be this, as I did to a family this week that was greatly mourning the loss of a dearly loved family member. The Bible teaches us things like this, that to be absent from, from this body is to be present with the Lord, and that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has even imagined what God has prepared for us. And, and that Jesus told us in John that, that when it's all ready, He's gone to prepare a place for us, and when it's ready, He's going to come and take us to be there with Him. And that and in this place, there'll be no more tears, no more sadness, no more absence of all that we know to be bad and presence of more good than we can even begin to fathom. And as I shared that with this family this week that was grieving, I want to share with you as well and, under, and help you understand something. And that is this, that death should really only be sad for two kinds of people. It should be sad, obviously, for those who die without knowing the Lord. That is, I mean, that's the ultimate tragedy. To die without knowing the Lord is very sad for, all, for that individual plus for all those who know that individual. But the only other type of person that, the only other time death should be sad is when, when it is a person who knows the Lord, or, or not, I guess, but it's sad for those who are left behind. That person can be sad because, oh, I'm going to miss this person who's now no longer with me. That's understandable as well. But don't, don't get confused and think that it is sad for the person who knows the Lord when they die. It is not sad for that person. 
That person, it, it's like a graduation party. That person gets to go home and be with the Lord. It is never sad for that individual. When they die and go home to be with the Lord, it is a blessing. That doesn't mean we have a death wish and say, oh, Lord, I want to circumvent your plan and make that happen quicker. We don't do that. But when, whenever God allows us to come home, we say, thank you, Lord. When, when John the Baptist breathed his last breath right before his head was severed from his body, which is a horrific situation to imagine or picture, it is sad in, that, in a respect for those who are going to miss him. But for John, I think, I, I don't know, but I think there was a smile on his face as he, as he knew what was about to happen. And boom, that last breath he took on earth was followed with a breath, the very first breath in heaven. And he knew in that moment more joy in an instant than you and I could ever even have in a whole lifetime on earth. And we need to be understanding and clear about that. And while we miss people who pass away... And we console one another at funerals for that reason. That makes perfect sense. We do not lament or, or grieve for the person who knows the Lord and who dies. It is not sad for them. Don't get that turned around in your head. Don't be sad for that Christian who gets to go home early. As Paul said, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Okay, now we see two amazing miracles in our chapter um, as we continue or as we wrap this up here. But let me just, they, they kind of speak for themselves, but let me make some comments as we go through them fairly quickly here. A very famous story here, verse 30 begins, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that, had, uh, had, that they had, taught, had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, and get some rest. You know, Jesus often slowed down and encouraged others to do the same. Modeling for all of us. Perfect pace in our way too fast-paced world. Reminding us to keep first things first. To focus on the right things. To care about the right things. To value the right things. To, yes, work hard. But also rest hard, if you will. Or play hard. Or Anyway, so verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, following Jesus' um, teaching or instruction. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, you might think, oh, he's going to go, oh, man, the plan got messed up. This isn't going to work, you know, shoo them away. But none of that, no. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Yes, what he had said is the plan got disrupted because of what these people did, but isn't it awesome to know that Jesus never gets frustrated with us when we're needy, when we come to him? Never does he say, well, come on, I've got other things to do, more important things to do. Never does he say that. Never does he get annoyed with you for coming to him with that same issue. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And that's what he did here and that's what he does for you and I. And I love that about our Lord and Savior. Oh, I love that. Verse 35, by, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. 
But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. I would guess they threw their hands up a little bit maybe, and they said to him, well, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five, five, and two fish. Jesus then, and I think very calmly, directed them to all uh, to, uh, to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Again, he's got five loaves and two fish to work with. Looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Now, just quick side note here. You know, giving thanks before we eat is a wonderful thing, but I think we need to do it Jesus' way. Sometimes I hear people say things like, hey, let's pause and let me bless the food. Hey, why don't you uh, bless the food before we eat together? Like, whatever, the intention is probably fine, but actually, I think there's a better way to say it, and that is what we see here. Give thanks for the food, because you know what? You and I do not have the ability or power to bless the food, right? We cannot do that. God blesses the food. Jesus gave thanks for the food. Maybe it's a technicality, but I think it's important for us to look at this the right way and make sure that we give thanks for the food, ask God to bless the food, but don't say, I'm going to bless the food, because no, you're not. You're just giving thanks for it. Okay, all right, anyway, move on. But remember this, not only that, but remember this also. Don't ever, don't ever hesitate. It doesn't matter how unpolitically or, yeah, un- incorrect it is in front of others or how awkward it may feel to you because of the crowd you're around. Don't ever hesitate to pause and say thank you to the Lord, to bow your head or Jesus looked, into, looked up toward heaven. Either way, don't hesitate because you're ashamed or afraid. Don't do that. If God lays it on your heart, I don't care how big the crowd is, give thanks. Thank Him for what He's given you. All right. Then He gave them, that means the five loaves and two fishes, to His disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. In other words, just the men were counted. So maybe there's what, 15,000, 20,000 when you count wives and children and all these others? Amazing number. Now keep in mind this incredible miracle as we look at one last miracle that happens here. Keep in mind that how inspired and amazed his disciples should be by what has just happened. He fed thousands, maybe 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And yet, look at what happens next. This is amazing. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, that little detail is not an accident. There are no accidents with Jesus he didn't accidentally allow them to be separated from him. He did things, everything on purpose. He had a plan, as he always does. Verse 46, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, before we get to the second amazing miracle, which is part of his plan, I want you to pause and just think about that short little verse. He went up on a mountainside to pray. It's similar to what he started to do with his disciples in verse 31 and 32. Now Jesus sets out on his own to a quiet place on a mountain to slow down, to be alone, to pray, to live out Psalm 46.10 when God tells us, be still and know that I am God. Jesus does that. And I want you to think about this. 
carefully. Listen to this. Jesus did not do that because he was some super spiritual giant doing super spiritual things that are beyond all of us common folk. He did that because he is one of us and he is doing normal, healthy, spiritual things to show us how to live normal, healthy, spiritual lives. Friends, what I want you to understand about that is if Jesus, who was deity, he is God's son, if he paused in his busy schedule and carved out time between all the miracles and parables and travels to say, I'm going to pause and be alone with Almighty God. Who are we to think that we don't need to do the same thing? Are, are we in less need of devotional time than Jesus? Like we're stronger spiritually than Him, maybe? Of course not. Oh, don't ever let yourself think that way understand what He wants from you. But don't do devotional time. Don't spend time alone with the Lord because you feel guilty if you don't. I mean, maybe you start there, but that's not what He wants. He wants you to do it because you feel incomplete, almost naked if you don't, ill-prepared. How many? Think of it this way. How many of you could, let's say you have a busy day scheduled, you're going to go out and have a bunch of meetings, or maybe you're going to an inter interview or something like that. How many of you could could walk out of that house, out of your house, on the way to a busy day like that without ever even looking in the mirror to make sure, you know, your teeth and hair and clothes and everything look okay. Who would do that? No way. Of course you're going to do that. And yet we somehow talk ourselves into thinking that we can walk out of that busy house on our way to that same important busy day without doing what Jesus did, which is pausing to, to stop and talk to the Lord about our priorities about His priorities for our life, our, our need for Him, our connection with Him, our relationship with Him. He wants us to be in relationship with Him. Just like as a father, you know, when my boys used to say, Hey, Daddy, can we hang out? I longed for that. I never said, well, you didn't ask me to do that yesterday, so I don't know, maybe not now. I never did that. I never did that, and God doesn't do that. I mean, yeah, he wanted you to yesterday, but okay, you didn't do that. So today, if you say, Lord, I, I want to spend some time together. I, I want to open my Bible and just let you speak to me through your word. He smiles and he says, oh, I've been waiting for that. Come on, let's spend some time together. There's nothing better. You know, he did this, Jesus, this is not an isolated occurrence. In Mark chapter 1, as we saw a few weeks ago, the Bible says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. We need to all practice such things, but not because we have to, but because we want to, because we feel lost without our time alone with him. Oh, friends, there is so much left on the table, opportunity and power and strength that you have left on the table when you walk out the door without spending time alone with the Lord. I just want to invite you. Actually, I want to pass on the invitation from Jesus, who is the one who is inviting you to spend time, to pause in the mornings, or maybe it's right before you go to bed, spend time alone with Him every day. Every day. Yes, every day. All right, let's finish the chapter briefly like this. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Again, no accidents. And He, Jesus, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, meaning somewhere around 3, or, three to 6 a.m. Uh, in the night, he, he went out to them, walking on the lake. 
He was about to pass them by. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? He was about to walk right on past them. I don't know exactly why, but I think maybe because he wanted them to acknowledge their need for him and cry out to him, but which they cried out, all right. Anyway, verse 49, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Not like, whoa, that's a little weird. No, they were scared to death. Immediately he spoke to them, though, and said, and I love this, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. He didn't chastise them. He comforted them. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. It just happened a few hours ago, feeding 5,000 or 10,000 or more, whatever, with five loaves and two fish. They didn't understand that. Their hearts were hardened. Again, as we close, let me just remind you, these are Jesus' disciples, people that he handpicked to change the world, and yet look at their flaws. Hard hearts, um, short-sighted. I mean, talk about short-sighted. They had just seen this amazing miracle, and yet instead of going, oh, oh there comes Jesus walking on the water. Well, I didn't know he was going to do that, but shouldn't surprise us after all. He just did, you know, but no, they didn't, they didn't do that. They saw him, and they were like, ah, you know, and they freaked out. Why did they freak out? Because they were short-sighted. Is anybody in the room ever hard-hearted or short-sighted? Any of you ever struggled with some of these kind of mistakes? Well, take heart because God, as He did with them, and as He did with the crowd who the Bible says Jesus had compassion on, He's the same way to you and me. And He has compassion on you, and He loves you, and He draws you near to Him. Look at how the passage closes. Verse 53, as the band comes back up, let's close by reading these last few verses of the chapter. Here it is, verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at uh, Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they, lay, to wherever they heard he was. And whenever, wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Look at those last six words again. All who touched him were healed. Jesus' touch brings healing. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's, more importantly, it's spiritual healing. But all who touched him were healed. And as we close this morning, I want to encourage you with those words. That touching Jesus, reaching out to Jesus brings healing. Does anybody in the room need some kind of healing in one way or another? Physical, emotional, uh, spiritual, whatever. Some kind of healing. I want to encourage you. If so, why not respond to his invitation today. He says, come to me all, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He also says in, in James chapter 4, come near to God and he will come near to you. Why not take him on at his word and do it today? Why not come forward and say, Lord, I'm all yours. I just want to touch the hem of your garment. Maybe I want to run up on stage and touch the, the cross that reminds us of what you did for us as we're about to celebrate and remember why not today? Will you stand with me? All who touched him were healed. All who touched him were healed. I want to invite you to come as our response team or prayer team will be down here with me. 
If you want to touch Jesus, if you want to be in close proximity to him, you can do so where you sit, but maybe you need to come and talk with or pray with somebody else. I want to invite you to do that as we sing and as we ask God, like as in a prayer through this song, Lord, give me faith. Give me faith, Lord. That is our prayer. Would you respond as we sing? Let's do it together. Let's sing it.